Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. So uh, the text that Robin read from Mark chapter 1 begins, um, As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they left the crowds, at least most of the crowds, behind. And you have to wonder, why? Well, first of all, it was evening, and we know, we're pretty sure that Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been teaching the crowds, he's been teaching the disciples, and I think he just wanted to get away for some rest. He was exhausted. He wanted to get away from the crowds to take a deep breath. Uh, he must have been exhausted because, as, we'll, as we read, uh, he falls asleep in the boat. And it seems like nobody else is sleeping because there's a giant storm. But Jesus falls asleep, so he must have been exhausted. And I love that the humanity of Jesus is on display here. That he's, he's like you and me in, in every way, uh, except for he did not sin. Like, he got tired. He fell asleep. Verse 37, soon a fierce storm came up. High winds were breaking into the boat, and he began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. I love this little detail, by the way, with his head on a cushion. It just demonstrates that this is, once again, an eyewitness account. You know, you, you edit out this sort of superfluous information if you are putting together a fabricated story. He had his head on a cushion in the bow of the boat. And the disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we are going to drown? Well, the Sea of Galilee, I've never been there. I know that some of you have. But the Sea of Galilee is uh, 696 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains. And these mountains are carved with deep valleys that act kind of like wind tunnels. And if you know anything about the Bernoulli effect, then you know that these wind tunnels or these valleys act like wind tunnels as the cold air from the mountains, which is heavier than the hot air down on the lake, the cold air from the mountains gets funneled into these valleys and blasts onto the lake. And because of this geography, it's pretty common for furious storms to just whip up out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee, which is not a sea at all, it's a lake, but uh, on, this, uh, on this lake. Have you ever been in a storm at sea or on a lake? I've sort of been in a storm at sea. When I was growing up, we used to go over to the coast of Washington and go salmon fishing, and we had um, what was a very small boat for the ocean. We had this 18-foot aluminum river runner Hughescraft, and uh, we would fish in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is basically the open ocean. And one day, we were headed out to go salmon fishing, and we're a couple miles from shore. <clears throat> we were pounding through the waves, and the waves were really big this day, like 20 or 30 feet. And we finally, well, not finally, but at one point, this wave crashes over the bow of the boat. And I, I can't remember, I'm like 12 years old or something. And so my experience as a 12-year-old was that our boat 
went underwater through the wave as the top of the wave crashed over this, you know, I mean, 18-foot aluminum boat in an ocean is like, you know, is like a raft. It's, it's nothing. And, and I saw the wave crash into the back of the boat. And that's when my dad was like, yeah, maybe we better turn around. <laughs> Many of these guys were not like me, a scared 12-year-old who'd never really been in that kind of experience before, but many of these guys were professional fishermen on this lake. And so they would have encountered all kinds of storms like this or similar to this before. And the fact that they're freaked out by this particular storm just helps us understand how big of a deal this was. This was a life-threatening storm. Speaking of the storm's magnitude, this is really cool. Um, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew also tells of this account where Jesus and his disciples are going across the lake in this boat. And in Matthew's account, um, he uses the Greek words seismos megas to describe the storm. Don't you love that? It was a mega seismic event. This was a huge storm. Verse 38, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion's on a cushion, the disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we are going to drown? Don't you care? The translation of this original Greek, um, I think, takes away from some of the urgency that the disciples are trying to communicate here. The original uh, Greek used there is this word apolumai, and it literally means to cease to exist with the implication of violence. Perishing would be a, a, a really good translation of this word. Don't you care that we are perishing? They didn't say, don't you care that we may die pretty soon? They said, don't you care that we are perishing right now? We are literally dying, Jesus. Can you relate to these guys? who are like, why has Jesus fallen asleep at the wheel? Don't you care? Why haven't you calmed the seas around me, God? You can see that I'm literally perishing, can't you? Hello, Jesus? Hello, Jesus, are you there? This reminds me of the episode in 1 Kings Verse 17, when the prophet Elijah, he is taunting uh, the prophets of Baal. And um, you might remember this. He says this. He's egging the prophets of Baal on uh, because he knows that uh, this God, Baal, doesn't actually exist. And so um, he taunts them. At noon, Elijah mocks them, saying to the prophets, Come on, cry aloud. Yell louder. Call out to your God more loudly. Surely he is a God. Well, but maybe he's meditating, or maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he is just asleep and must be awakened. I wonder if the disciples, who were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures in 1 Kings, I wonder if they had that story in mind, like, Jesus, you're sleeping through this? I'm about to die. I wonder if they also had Psalm 121 in mind. Psalm 121, which says, He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I wonder if they're like, are, are you the God of Israel? 
the one who never slumbers or sleeps, or are you like Baal, the God who is actually not a God at all because he doesn't exist and it seems like he's asleep all the time? Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? The fact that they call Jesus teacher indicates that they don't really understand who Jesus is. They understand a little bit about Jesus, but they don't yet understand all of who Jesus is. Yes, he is the teacher. But as you know, even the best teachers do not command the waves and the wind. After Jesus miraculously calms the storm and the sea, they're terrified. And they ask one another, who is this man whom even the winds and waves obey? In other words, who is this man who is clearly much more than the greatest teacher we have ever heard? Who is this man? And that's the question that we've got to wrestle with. That's the question that the scriptures put before us. Who is he? What is the meaning of life? That's not the main question. Who am I? That's not the main question. Is there life after death? That is not the main question. The primary question, the most important question, the question that the scriptures beg of us, the question from which all other questions flow is, who is this man? Because how we answer that question informs how we answer every other question. It informs who we believe we are. How we answer that question, who are you, Jesus, informs what we believe about the meaning of life. It informs whether we believe that there is life after death and what that life after death may or may not look like. Who is he? That's the question that we've got to wrestle with. Verse 39, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. I love this. Jesus speaks three words. Silence, be still. And the winds and the waves, they just stopped. Don't miss this. Don't gloss over this. Stop reading right here. Stop for a moment. He speaks three words, and the wind and the waves cease. The word of God has power. When Jesus speaks, stuff happens. This is supposed to remind you of the Genesis creation account in Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light. Four simple words. I don't know how many words it is in the, original Hebrew, in the original Hebrew. Let there be light. And what happened? Light. His word is creative. It creates what did not exist. And here, the word of God is powerful. It calms the most violent of storms. And you know, if the wind had ceased when Jesus said, silence, be still, if the wind had just ceased, then we could say that that could have been a, a, a happenstance. You know, it could have been coincidence. Uh, if you time it just right, you could be in a boat and you could stand up and look at the wind and say, silence, be still. And if you time it just right and the wind calms at that moment, congratulations. Some people might call you a miracle worker. 
And we could have said that about Jesus here if the wind would have just ceased, but also the waves ceased and a great calm came over the sea. If you know anything about how water in the wind is, you know that the lake should have been choppy for many hours after this. But even the waves ceased. And so in verse 40, they asked, he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still not have faith? Do you still not have faith? What do we learn from this experience that the disciples had in the boat with Jesus? A couple things at least. First of all, Jesus doesn't promise a storm-free journey, but he does promise to be with us in it. This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because... Thou art with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, the living God doesn't promise to take the valleys away. He doesn't promise to take the pain away, the suffering away, or the storms away. But he does promise to be with us. And remember last week what we learned about being in the valley? It's in the valley where all the richest soil is. And so it's in the valley that we often grow the most. It's when we're going through those challenging seasons, through those storms, that we can grow as disciples the most. Imagine these disciples in the boat. They grew a whole bunch that day, didn't they? They really learned that they could trust Jesus, even when they felt they were actually dying. What if they had rowed across the lake or sailed across the lake in just the calm waters of a gentle Galilean evening? They certainly wouldn't have learned what they learned here. You know, Jesus is with us in the storm even when we don't feel like it. The disciples are like, Jesus, don't you care? He's asleep in the stern. It's like he's absent It's like he is slumbering through all of their pain. Their feelings were that Jesus didn't care about the fact that they felt they were perishing. But were their feelings reliable? They were not. And sometimes our feelings are also not reliable. Sometimes our feelings don't tell us the truth. And sometimes when we feel as though God is absent, those feelings don't actually reflect reality. Jesus is with us in the storm, even when it's not obvious. So after Jesus rescues the disciples in the midst of this violent storm, he gets to the other side of the lake. And um, we're going to look at the rest of the story. And in order to do that, I want to invite Robin uh, back up and... Uh, for her to read the rest of the story uh, from Mark chapter 5. Thanks, Robin. Okay, so now we are going to um, read from Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 20. Um, but this time I'd like you to help me out. Um, so I'd like you to um, follow along on the screens. And when it says all and it's bolded, I would love for you to read with me. Again, that's Mark 
Chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue, enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. The spirits begged Jesus, send us into pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. This is God's word for us. Awesome. Nice work, everybody. Good job. Hey, don't take that personally that I assigned the role of the demons to the congregation. So Jesus uh, arrives on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. The other side of the lake was primarily Gentile territory. And so for the religious Jew in the first century, the other side of the lake, that was like the spiritual slum. That's where unclean people lived, doing unclean things in a land that was unclean. It's no wonder that we run into a herd of 2,000 pigs, an animal that more than any other signifies uncleanliness to the first century Jew. And it's in this unclean region where unclean people live that Jesus goes. And it's here that he encounters a man who is possessed by unclean spirits, a man demonized, tortured by demons. And you know, Jesus is always going to the other side of the lake metaphorically speaking. 
He's always reaching out to those who are in most need of help. He's like a doctor who's always hanging out with sick people. He's like a therapist who's always hanging out with broken people. Who are the folks today who live on the other side of the lake? Who are the the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed? You know, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be going to the other side of the lake, perhaps more often than we do. But what do we do about this episode that is really um, strange and uh, is a bit uneasy for, um, for many of us, including myself? What do we do with this episode? Well, in his classic work about the devil called The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes uh, the following about some dangers we encounter in our understanding of the devil and of demonic powers. C.S. Lewis, a trustworthy voice, I think, writes this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devil and his minions are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. Denial of the enemy's existence doesn't do anything to help us. It doesn't make the enemy any real, any less real or any less dangerous. In fact, quite the opposite. Just like our problems, denying our problems doesn't make them any less real or any less dangerous. In fact, usually quite the opposite, right? This is the error of whom C.S. Lewis calls the materialist, people who would just deny the existence of such beings, of such evil, of the devil. On the other hand, to become overly fascinated with the devil and his minions is really just to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And to distort reality. And the, re- the reality is that if we're looking for a demon behind every door, we're going to find one. Because if there isn't actually one there, we're going to create one. That's the error of who C.S. Lewis calls the magician. So let's approach the scriptures with eyes wide open to the reality of the devil. But let's not fall prey to suspecting that there's a little devil behind every door we open. Well, what is the evil one's purpose with this man on the other side of the lake? And what can we believe in and bear witness to about Jesus through this story? Well, I think the evil one's purpose is always the same. It's always to attack the living God. The evil one is not your enemy. You are not the evil one's enemy. The living God is the evil one's enemy. The evil one is only interested in destroying your life in so much as to do so is an attack on your God. The evil one seeks to take us hostage, not because he cares about us, like, you know, in a bad way, not because he cares anything about us, but because he cares about the one to whom we belong. And he wants to hurt the one to whom we belong. And how can you hurt the one to whom you belong? Take hostage those who belong to him. The second century African named uh, Tertullian, he was considered the father of theology. And he famously wrote this, the glory of God is man fully alive. 
The glory of God is man fully alive. When you're fully alive, when you are a flourishing human being made in God's image, you are bringing glory to God. Fully alive people are really good for God's reputation. And so that's why the evil one wants to prevent this man from being fully alive. As one theologian has observed, this poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic pleasure. It's a vivid picture. And the scriptures seem to go to length to paint this picture for us about how bad this man was so far from being fully alive. And the enemy does this to this man to get at God. And more than anything, this encounter shows us Jesus' power over the devil and Jesus' power to reverse the life-threatening effects of the devil's hold on this man's life. Jesus has power over the devil. Jesus has absolute power over him just as he has absolute power over the wind and the waves. The evil spirits made this man come and bow before Jesus. This is not an act of worship. It's an act of submission. The evil spirits, the demons, the devil, whatever it is that is possessing this man, know that they have no chance against the living God. They must submit. And so they come before Jesus and they bow before him. This is not worship and praise. This is surrender and submission. And Jesus says to the spirits, come out of the man, you evil spirit. And there's no verbal conflict here. There's no conflict of any kind. It's just like when Jesus said to the wind, silence, be still. In the same way, Jesus says, come out of the man, you evil spirit. And the evil spirit must obey Jesus because Jesus' word has power. And rather than putting up a fight that the devil knew that he could not win, the evil spirits begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. This is weird. And Jesus gives them permission. That's what the text says. Jesus grants them permission. Who's in charge in this episode? It's clearly Jesus. He has got all the power here. Now, I grew up in the Star Wars era. And in the Star Wars era, it was not clear whether the rebels or the galactic empire were going to win. You know, how is this going to turn out? Is it going to be the force or is it going to be the dark side that ultimately gets the victory? It's not really clear. And then Star Wars, the Star Wars saga gave way to the Lord of the Rings, right? And so now it's like, is it going to be Lord Sauron or is it going to be the fellowship? Is the ring going to be destroyed or not? Am I, are you with me? Come on. Come on. How's it going to turn out? We don't know. But the battle between the living God and the devil is nothing like that. There is no epic battle. Jesus handily defeated the devil at the cross in the greatest paradox in history. As someone once said, when death stung Jesus, it stung itself to death. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is just given to us because the victory has been God's all along. It's his to give. 
And this is why you and I don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear of a devil behind every door. First of all, there probably is not a devil behind every door. Secondly, where the devil is, we do not need to fear. When we are in Christ, we are in his victory. And we simply need name the name of Jesus. And the devil and his minions must go away. They must bow before Jesus. You do not need to live in fear. There is no epic battle. Jesus has already won. This is when you say amen. Verse 15, the man was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. The people were astonished because this man was hardly recognizable from the man whom they had come to know in the graveyard. Jesus had set him free from the legion of demons, reversing their life-threatening effects. This next thing I'm going to say This one-liner, this is worth the price of admission, which is free, by the way. But if you remember nothing else from this morning, I hope you will walk away with this in your mind. Jesus is the storm stiller. Whether that storm is around us or within us. And you can trust him to still the storms. The storms that are out here, and you can trust him to still the storms that are in here. He is the one who can do it. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him, verse 18. Then verse 19, Jesus said, no. Can you imagine? Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no. No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. You know, sometimes Jesus calls us to leave behind what is familiar and to go and to follow him. And that was the story of the young men in the boat, right? The disciples, they left behind their livelihoods. They left behind their homes in order to follow Jesus. But sometimes Jesus calls us to follow him back into what is familiar. And that was the story of the man on the other side of the lake. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you. You know, sometimes we think that in order for us to really follow Jesus boldly, You know, if we were really serious about this, we would go overseas and become international missionaries. And God is calling some of you to do that. Are you listening? But more often than that, I should say, and I think more often than that, Jesus is calling you to follow him faithfully back home. To follow him faithfully back into the familiar in order that you can proclaim right here and right now the great things that Jesus has done for you. And in an era when the church of Jesus Christ, not the Mormon church, but the church of Jesus Christ is growing in leaps and bounds everywhere except for North America and Europe, in this era... Our neighborhoods are perhaps the most significant mission fields around. The most challenging place to share the gospel may not be Bolivia or Botswana or Brazil, but maybe between Bouchard and Brookhurst, north of Banning. 
So let's be like these disciples who were at awe, in awe at the power of Jesus, his power to calm storms around them and his power to calm storms within us. And let us be like the man on the other side of the lake who went and told his family and his friends and his neighbors time and time again that Jesus had calmed the storm within him. Did you note that this man did not go to graduate school in theology? Neither did the disciples, by the way. What did they do? They just went and told people what Jesus had done for them. And that's the invitation today, to trust in the power of Jesus to calm the storms and then to tell people what Jesus has done for you. So in light of that, let's pray, shall we? Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons or to subscribe or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.org.